0: running in Doha in the week leading up, I would go out of an evening. I was finishing these runs thinking, hey, this is like 10 times better than last night when I didn't take any water with me at all. And this is an hour long run and I was taking 600 mil and that was just like a massive benefit. And so that's when it sort of twigged in my mind, like you have to be taking a lot of this um, because if it makes a difference on a jog like this, it's gonna make a huge difference in the marathon.
1: Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. My name is Alan McCubbin, I'm an accredited sports dietitian, lecturer and researcher in sports nutrition at Monash University in Melbourne. And I'm joined as always by my colleague, fellow sports dietitian and researcher, Steph Gaskell. How are things, Steph?
2: Going good, Alan, going good. Uh, Yeah, I've um, come down, I've been allowed out of Melbourne, um, as many of us have, and come back home to Adelaide um to see family and friends um christmas new year's and um and holidays so uh yeah it's been good and i'm still struggling with the with the heat down here it's uh adelaide gets i reckon a little bit hotter than melbourne so yeah definitely yeah i've got i think a little bit sunburn going down to the beach and um enjoying enjoying being down there um but yeah yeah uh, looking... anyone
1: listening in the northern hemisphere who's currently in lockdown and freezing oh, cold winter he's probably yep. swearing at you a lot yep. and <laughs> complaining about sunburns def
2: yeah probably but
1: perspective you know
2: we've we had a lot of months in in lockdown so, oh yeah you know yes yep yep yeah exactly yeah. right yeah yeah cool
1: so on the long match, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists, and triathletes ask. This is the kind of stuff that people might talk about in the cafe or or with when you're out running or riding with your mates, uh, and you sort of have those niggling nutrition questions that you're all arguing about, and you've all read different stuff on social media and on blogs and websites and all that kind of thing. So we take those sort of key questions that people have and, and break them down and invite guests in to, to talk about their experiences with this, whether it's a, a researcher or a scientist um, or it's, it's an athlete to give their perspective as well. So today is episode 3B. And our question is, In a race, should I just drink, uh, should I plan my drinking in terms of what, you know, how much fluid I'm going to drink during a race, or should I just drink to thirst and kind of, you know, wing it to a degree? Um, So we had uh, in episode 3A, Dr. Lewis James from Loughborough University gave us a fantastic idea of the sort of the science behind this and some of the really cool research that he's been doing. Uh, And today we're going to hear the athlete perspective around this. So Steph, do you want to tell us a bit about who our guest is today?
2: Yeah, yeah. So. Um, we're lucky enough to have Julian Spence join us Um, so for those who don't know Julian he's known to many as the big moose Um, I think I'm pretty sure that's because he's close to six feet six feet tall Um, and he's an Australian long distance runner so his hometown is in Ballarat um, and In 2019, he um, successfully competed in the men's marathon um, at the World Athletic Champs in Doha. Doha. Um, He finished 39th in that uh, time of 2.19.40 and he was the only Australian to take part in in that event. Um, And, you know, I think a lot of people got scared away because of um, it being a very hot and humid climate. Uh, it was also going to be uh, raced at, at midnight to try and obviously offset offset that heat. And so Julian was one of only 55 runners uh, to, to finish the race out of 80. Uh, and I heard just from, from reading a bit after of Julian, Julian's experience that it was the toughest race that he's ever had to take part in. Uh, so so surprisingly, though, with Doha, the marathon was actually the coolest of all the four events during the night. So that was uh, a godsend, I think, for, for Julian for, for that. So it ended up being 30 degrees and about 45% humidity. They had 18 competitors that actually had to withdraw because of the heat. So it's, you know it wasn't, it wasn't an easy feat. Uh, and Jules is known quite well for his high mileage type of training. Uh, he runs a running shop in, in Ballarat. He's the founder of Run Strong Online Coaching. And he also coaches elite marathoner Ellie Pashley. So there'll be many of you who know, who know Ellie. Um, he's a pretty hard worker and um, he's a race director and he's also a co-host of the Inside Running podcast. So he's a busy man.
1: He is, and great podcast inside running. We've both been guests on that before, and uh, yeah, great friends of the show. So it's fantastic to, to have Julian along. Uh, and as you said, obviously a you know very unique experience with a very hot race in the middle of the night. You know, kind of exact yeah. opposite to what you normally expect in a, um, you know, a major city marathon or something like that. So um, obviously a big challenge from a, a heat and a hydration point of view, which is exactly why we wanted to to get him on and, and talk about his experience with that. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So, obviously, that's that's our question, our topic for today. If there's a particular topic that, that you guys are debating out there with, with your running cycling mates, um, whatever it is, feel free to get in touch with us via social media at The Long Munch. Uh, we're there on uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So send us a message, send us a shout out, and um, yeah, if you've got a, a question that you'd like us to answer on the show, then let us know. And it might be one that, uh, that, we, that we look at in, in the future and bring in some, some scientists and some athletes to have a, have a chat about that. And sorry, the, the other thing I forgot to mention with, um, with Julie and Steph is that um, he had a, a great nutrition plan by a great sports dietitian. And I'm talking to her right now. So uh, yeah, you, you got to work with Jules in the, in the lead up to Doha as well.
2: Yes, yep, yep, was lucky.
1: Yeah, awesome. All right, so that's all we need to do I think um, now. So let's get stuck into episode 3B of The Long Munch and our interview with Julian Spence.
2: Awesome, looking forward to it. Julian
1: Spence, welcome to The Long Munch. How are you going?
0: Thanks. Yeah, I'm going well. Thanks, Alan. Yeah, hot day, which is, is good
1: because it's very topical for what we're going to talk about today, but sort mm. of the first hot day of the, uh, I guess, spring, summer for us here in, in Melbourne and, and you obviously down the coast a little bit. Did you get out and train today?
0: Yeah, yeah. I trained a bit later actually because I had a uh, had a, something to do in the morning. So I got out about like 10am and it was already kind of warm and um, lots of lots of memories of of the heat actually come back because all the same things happen again like we may have be heat adapted once but it leaves um it leaves us like fitness leaves us so you have to do it all over again and i haven't got it at the moment
1: (laughs) yeah 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 no exactly right so you you heat acclimate and you heat unacclimate absolutely now, Very I mean, cool. you're down in Anglesey at the moment, but um, you spent a lot of time and have spent a lot of your time in Ballarat over the last few years. Um, for those listeners who don't know uh, Australia or, or Victoria, in particular, Ballarat's, a I guess, I call it a country town, maybe an hour and a half's drive from Melbourne, uh, notorious for being bloody cold.
0: Yeah, really yeah, bloody cold. It <laughs> is in winter. Um, it's amazing an hour down the road. What? How a climate can change like that? Because. Mm. Uh, we always, growing up in Anglesey, we always remembered or, or knew of Ballarat as being that really freezing cold place with uh, Sovereign Hill, the, the gold, kind of like the old style gold rush um, theme park and it was always freezing and we went on a school camp there and it snowed and we thought, what is this place? Why would anyone want to live here? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we I still kind of half live there as well. Um, yeah. And the cold, it look, it it, it does breed a tougher type of athlete because um, mm. if you don't train down there from in the cold, then you basically don't train from like May through to October.
1: Yeah, exactly right. And I think, I mean, it's probably true in, in other states as well, but certainly in Victoria like um it's it's not uncommon for a lot of sort of high-level athletes to come from country towns, not come from, you know, the big cities. Uh, and I guess it's it's more around sort of opportunities of what's available out there and, and what you get to do with your spare time, I suppose. But, um, yeah, I mean, Ballarat's one of those towns, I think, that has that kind of pedigree for producing athletes.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's When I came to town, I was amazed at the like the, the depth of runners in town and the local running community was enormous uh, compared to what I was used to. Uh, not just like – I mean, at the top end, you obviously had like this culture of high-end runners, like Steve Monaghetti is the most famous name, but there's there's a lot of others from there, like T- Tony Benson was, was one of them um, who was – uh, basically, nearly started as Monas coach back in the day. That's sort of how old he was. He wasn't Monas coach, but that was sort of the era. Uh, then you've got others like Cole's Birmingham, Shane Nankervis, uh, and then there's been a, a spot for people to come and train, like the Melbourne Track Club had a had a summer there where they all went down and, and trained. And um, the, the for me, the the biggest change was the uh, like the acceptance of what was um, good as a as an athlete and. It was really a, a ceiling raiser down there because you chat to those guys and all of a sudden winning the local fun run is not actually um, a good result or an indicator of success. It's competing on the world stage and uh, that's <laughs> that was it. another real change from where I'd come from where there was no international athletes, um, even national athletes really.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I mean it's not really running as exclusively either. I mean they got a triathlon run in Ballarat. The National Road Cycling Championships mm-hmm. are held there every year, so it's a, it's a happening town.
0: Yeah, it's an endurance town. Um, you've got a lot of cyclists. Uh, you got the, the even currently you've got a, some high level cyclists that compete at the national stage, um, and then triathlons big in town. There's multiple groups. There was a half. They had the half Ironman here. Or was it? Uh, Oh, at yeah, 70.3 yeah. back a few years ago the um yeah so rowing rowings big here as well oh, so yeah. lots of endurance sports yeah
1: yeah cool and i mean from your perspective obviously you know the reason we're chatting to you today is uh, around your experience that you had last year with the um the athletics world championships doing the marathon over in doha which was obviously a a pretty hot experience hence mm-hmm. why we've been sort of talking about that already um and, and you became quite well known in ballarat for uh switching on the heat chamber in your shop so you have a, a running sh- uh, shoe shop in ballarat and you had a treadmill in there and made up a bit of a heat chamber
0: oh uh, yeah i only did that a couple of times <laughs> um i think they the abc came down and filmed me once doing it uh-huh. uh, but I, I only actually did it a few times and <laughs> the yeah in the store it's only a small store and you can get the heat the heater has a vent just above the treadmill so you can crank that up i think the highest it went was like 30 degrees and and then you uh, i had a few layers on but the treadmill's right in front of the um window at the front of the store and then uh, this is a fish and chip shop really popular one next door <laughs> so all the uh everyone would order their fish and chips go wet outside and just stare at me I was jogging on the treadmill <laughs> with a hood on and a beanie <laughs> and gloves and it was like what is this crazy guy doing
2: <laughs> good advertising uh, for the shop <laughs>
0: yeah it actually was they would they would all make fun of me at the front and i was just like oh no and how do you go running on a
1: treadmill with the smell of fish and chips like wafting through the yeah, store
0: oh mate that it's not a nice it's not actually pleasant um i think being so close to a fish and chip store and being out the back with all the the barrels of old oil um, Ooh, yeah. i don't think i'll ever really eat fish and <laughs> chips. <anymore. laughs> yeah yeah fair enough
1: mm. um And obviously, you know, the other unique challenge that you had with Doha is not just the heat, but the fact that the race was running literally at midnight in the middle of the night, uh, which is obviously a very different experience. I mean, I guess some of the ultra runners will run overnight, uh, but, you know, for you guys running um, sort of middle distance, half marathon, marathon, that's a completely different experience for you guys.
0: Yeah, and that was one of the... um, I guess, strategies by the World Athletics and the Doha Athletic Committee or whoever they are to counteract the heat and to provide a sort of level of safety for the the runners. They, uh, they shifted to midnight because of um, the absolute high temperatures during the day at Doha and it just... <laughs> If they had have held it during the day, it it would have been absolute. It was already carnage, but it would have just almost been like some sort of massacre out there. It was. I went for one run during the the, the day in the lead up during actual sunlight hours, and oh, I, I it was half an hour, and I came back and I thought I could never do that again. Mm-hmm. That's how yeah. hot it was. I think the feels like was like high forties, like forty eight, nearly fifty. And, wow. Um, yeah, it's just it's it's a different level it's a different type of heat yeah
1: yeah and i mean for you guys too like i mean you guys are used to running you know big city marathons and they're always timed at a certain time of the year when it is quite cool um Mm -hmm. because that's conducive well for safety for one reason particularly for the more recreational athletes but also it's conducive to fast times uh and he and i guess the problem is that you have those major championships, you know, world championships, Commonwealth Games, Olympics, where you don't have that luxury. Like the time is the time because it has to cater to a whole range of sports and, you know, tourism and media and all that kind of stuff. So um, is that sort of the first time you've ever had to uh, run sort of like a a major sort of goal race in those kind of conditions in like unusually hot weather?
0: Definitely, yeah. We always, like you said, plan around optimal conditions. If you want to run fast times, then... You've got to pick the, the 10 to 15-degree races. Um, and so you don't pick your championships, especially for me who uh, who is borderline getting into these events. We don't get to pick and choose which championships we go to. Some of the guys can do that. They have the luxury of doing that because they, um, they can run qualifying times whenever they want nearly. And so they actually did pick to not run in Doha because of the um, – because of the the conditions that were going to be there so but for me it's like no well i'm in this race i'll deal with it um and traditionally in the in the heat i'm i'm not a very good like i haven't been a good performer i'm a bit bigger than usual and i've never really enjoyed it so it was going to be an extra challenge for me but um (laughs) it's the world championship what are you going to do you're going to you're not going to say no exactly right yeah Yeah. sure So tell us
1: a little bit about sort of the preparation you you did then obviously you know you know from a long time out that it's going to be hot like it's no secret um you're not going to get there and be surprised by that so what are the sort of things that you did sort of in the the weeks and months leading up to the event to kind of prepare yourself i mean we talked a little bit about you know what you did in the shop a couple of times but what else were you able to do to kind of prepare yourself for it
0: yeah um the number one consideration was being as fit as i possibly could on the day so I wanted to be 100% fit uh, and then have the heat and body clock adaptions as well. Mm. I didn't wanna rock up. I, I think a lot of people focus maybe too much on their heat and body clock stuff. And uh, they ignored like the fact that you have to be as fit as possible to in order to actually perform your best as well. So um, I, my number one priority was getting as fit as I could. And then um, using the the heat adaptions and the heat training uh, and then the body clock stuff as an accessory on top of that so i went to um saint moritz which is an altitude training destination in switzerland um, because that's where i felt i had the best best training location to get as fit as possible there, there was actually a shortage of treadmills there the uh, the gym only had one in town and there was another gym that cost like something like fifty dollars a visit um with a treadmill so uh yeah there, it wasn't an ideal heat training location um but I I did we I was there with Sinead Diver and Ali Pashley um Camille Buscom from New Zealand as well was their training so we uh we ended up going to the the sauna that the, the um the walkers had booked out so there was australian walkers there was evan a past guest he was there uh preparing as well and they had a sauna um that they had booked out so we ended up sort of tagging along with those guys and using the sauna which is in a different town um, so i used a, a protocol developed and, and um designed by sam to beck steph your your mate from from south australia he was doing a bit of research on this and he sort of put something together where he suggested i get in the um the sauna post running so i'll do an easy run and i would do it sometimes i would do it layered so to get my body core temperature up and then i would get in the treadmill post run for about 20 minutes or so uh, I think about. I think it got up to about sort of seventy degrees Celsius in there. I think that's what we we're working off. Um, and and then I, I after I got out, the idea was that I wasn't to cool down. I was to spend as much time um, with that elevated core temperature as possible. Uh, and and there was that was actually really difficult. So that was much harder than I thought it was going to be, especially when. One of the sessions that I did was was sauna, and then get back into all my layers and run home. Oh. Um, so yeah, it was like my heart rate. I was shuffling along, and my heart rate was going through the roof. It was it was actually a really good experiment to sort of see that the effect that a higher core temperature has on your performance. Um, because th- the heart just couldn't stay low like it, it just couldn't get low yeah. even if I was walking um mm. I remember I was on the way home and I got passed by the American a lot of American runners and I'm like this is so embarrassing I was walking <laughs> up this hill and I'm like I've got to be I've got to stick to the plan but I really want to start running because these guys are just looking at me like I was some kind of loser <laughs> yeah well, that's yeah. when you just have to think oh, I'll see you in Doha, buddy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> that was kind of it and I had a hood on so at least no one saw my face. But <laughs> yeah. The sauna stuff, actually the most difficult, the most difficult thing that I did was it was a bath afterwards. So a hot bath post run was so much harder than the sauna um because I think you're just totally immersed in this in this in the hot water. Uh, afterwards, I like I was I felt really sick and ill. Um, that that slapped me around, and I I lost like focus, to concentration. I couldn't even tell how long I'd been in the bath for. Um, and then I struggled to get back to my room after that. That was, that was actually quite scary. That one. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
1: And I mean, the topic for today is, you know, should I, um, drink to, you know, a plan during a race or, or just sort of let thirst guide you. So let's talk about the hydration side of things. So again, obviously, you, you know, going into a race like Doha, that you're going to sweat an awful lot. It's going to be hot and being at night, it's also going to be much more probably humid than it would have been during the day, even if it's a bit cooler, um, so you know you're going to sweat a lot were there specific things that you were able to do to kind of prepare for that in terms of trying to work out what your fluid needs might be and and sort of having some sort of plan going into the race for that
0: i didn't get the any of that sort of testing that um that sweat rate testing that i know some people have had uh i've never really focused on electrolytes before due, when i've sort of been running um and hydration wise I do take my carbs in a liquid form during marathons in the past and and that's always worked really well for me and i know that's a little easier than someone maybe who who gets their carbs in a gel and then has to get a drink as well so for me in the past um my race day nutrition's been okay i knew there was extra stresses because of this heat and so i sort of i did reach out to i did some reading of my own and it was quite there was no clear answer you know like with carbs carb intake there's There's almost a clear answer in terms of sort of measurements and and amounts that you can sort of go go, use as a guideline. Um, But with the electrolyte stuff, I couldn't find any real guidelines or any real recommendations for intake. So uh, I did. I did sort of get get a bit of a plan from from Steph where we worked out. Um, what could be a reasonable amount um i was taking like the goal or the plan for me was to take the morton drink mix which um, has quite a bit of sodium in it already and it is mixed with with carbohydrate and then i was going to um potentially uh sort of supplement that with with electrolyte drink as well during the race um but I, i i didn't really like it was a plan but it was a guide but not like a strict plan Um, a lot of it was going to be I was going to feel it out on the night as to as to what I was going to take so I didn't actually do a lot of prep work for that to be honest and I mean I guess
1: uh, we talked a little bit about this in the last episode with Lewis James I mean I think an event like the marathon particularly you know at that elite level where you guys are absolutely hammering it um, it's, it's one thing to know what your fluid needs are it's another thing to be able to actually Grab a cup, a bottle, whatever it is. At that pace, drink it. Not choke on it because you're breathing so heavily. Uh, to get that anywhere near that volume to replace your sweat loss is almost going to be impossible. And and what is the time lost to actually go through and do that properly is is potentially going to be quite large. So it's going to be a bit of a trade off, isn't it? And possibly at the stage where it's it's you know to some degree not worth it.
0: Uh, absolutely. And I I think we did do one trial run where I was taking on the. The amount of fluid that we had planned i think it was the maybe 10 days before i did a workout with at race pace and uh mechanically <laughs> i couldn't do it i was yeah. like it was at, at the pace i was running it was just too fast to be able to try to suck down that much um and so i sort of went back and thought okay i might have to readjust this um mm. yeah if anyone doesn't know what that's like jump on a, a treadmill or,
1: or or hit you know 18 to 20 k's an hour Mm. and try and drink you know 800 mils an hour of fluid and you'll you'll see what (laughs) jules is talking about
0: yeah yeah it's it's a tough gig yeah Mm. yeah
1: all right um and I mean, obviously, you, you probably knew or, or had um, some sense that you were going to need to drink more, like even if it wasn't a specific amount, but it was going to mm-hmm. be more than you would in a, a normal marathon that you would have run. Was that something that you sort of prepared for beforehand in, trying, in terms of trying to work out whether you could tolerate that amount of fluid, regardless of you know, the mechanics of accessing it, drinking it and swallowing it, but just you know, having it sit in your stomach as well?
0: Yeah, that was something that um, I, it sort of, practiced a little bit um, in some of the bigger workouts is just trying to get more fluid in but um, like when you're in training you, you go out with the intention of practicing but a lot of the time the, the actual running practice takes over and you sort of you get to a point during the workout where you think nah stuff that i'm not feeling like that i'm not going to try i'm not even going to practice it so you have to be more disciplined in i wasn't very disciplined in that there were times when i got home from my run and there was like three bottles left in my bag and i thought oh why didn't i take these um But i didn't really feel like them during the the workout so uh while i was running in doha in the week leading up i would go out of an evening and at the start i went out there was no water to drink on the on the sort of promenade where we went and trained we had a sort of area that we could run in next to the marathon course and i would come back and i was so hot and um sort of i was really fatigued it was terrible stuff and then i started taking a bottle out and the amount of benefit I got from just carrying a water bottle with me when I ran was amazing. Like I was finishing these runs, thinking, hey, this is like 10 times better than last night when I didn't take any water with me at all. And this is an hour long run, and I was taking 600 mil. And that was just like a massive benefit. And so that's when it sort of twigged in my mind, like, you have to be taking a lot of this. Um, because if it makes a difference on a jog like this, it's going to make a huge difference in the marathon
1: yeah for sure and is that anything that sort of you look back now like if you were to do a hot race again like for example if you ended up at tokyo next year and you were doing obviously an, you know, another hot race is there something in that approach in the lead up and the planning of that that you think oh yeah i'd do that differently next time
0: i was pretty comfortable with how it all went i think i ran to my my maximum potential on the evening like yeah. I, I ran nearly a perfect split i think I negative split by maybe five seconds or 10 seconds or something and that's about as good as I could have gone and and for me running under 220 uh in 30 degree weather that's like that's that if you had come to me three months before and said it's going to be 30 degrees and you're going to run 219 I'd go no I'm not that's just no I couldn't do that um Mm. so it went really well I would do a lot of the things the same and I actually just went through a message thread before that I had with Steph the, the day after um and and read it and um, I'd totally forgotten about it, but I basically just said um, it, it. It played out pretty much perfect to how we had planned. I had zero gut issues; never felt dehydrated. I did overheat um, toward the end, but I mean that's just to be expected. Yeah, and there were a few notes on the um, the taper or the the carb load leading in that i would change um, but nothing around hydration really oh there was one thing about the sodium load but i think you're going to chat about that as well
1: yeah yeah, yeah cool yeah and, and from memory like looking at the the times i mean obviously everyone was going to be slower than their pbs just because of the mm. weather but from memory like how much slower you were than your pb was probably like there was a smaller gap between your pb and your time on that day than probably almost everyone else in the race
0: yeah and i I was i think i look at the ranking i came in ranked something like 75th out of 80 and i finished um in 39th so that's that's a good result for me like finishing ahead of your rankings a good result and obviously there were some people that pulled out because they didn't think it was worth finishing but as far as i'm concerned that's that's me finishing higher than them yeah yeah exactly yeah
1: And so you mentioned it just before, like probably more so the hours leading up to the event. Tell us a little bit about that. I mean, there's probably two parts to that. There's the hydration part of it, uh, which you sort of alluded to with the sodium load before. And then there's the sort of the cooling component to that and trying to, you know, not overheat before you've even started the race. Do you want to tell us a bit about what that involved in that sort of hours leading up to the race?
0: Yeah, pre-cooling was something that I'd never done before. Uh, well, I never had to do it, and I never even really considered it all the benefit that I could have. But then I started talking to um, Brent Valance, who was the – it's actually Evan's coach, and he'd done a lot around heat um, preparation. He sort of dealt – or he, he'd helped Jared Talon in Beijing. I think that was like the um, the event that he saw the most benefit for, for the heat training protocols and stuff that he'd used. And so – I practiced um, pre-race Well, the cool like the sodium load was one of them he was using with his walkers glycerol as well I think it was part of a study they were doing um, yeah. I wasn't too interested in that because I didn't want to risk anything that I hadn't really tried before um, I tried the sodium load uh, in Italy in the lead up like at a almost um, sort of practice night I guess you'd call it that I did and um, it seemed to go fine so, and i didn't want to add anything different on the day so uh i think that was about two and a half thousand milligrams of sodium in what, 500 mils of um solution mate would that be about right
2: yeah i think that's what we what we had um, i think that's it yeah. it's
0: very salty
2: <laughs> yeah in um, 600 600 to 700 mils and okay, we had yeah, yeah about 2000 2500 milligrams of sodium, yep, it's based on your body weight,
0: yeah. So that was something that I never heard before. You told me about that as well. Um, so that was new to try, and uh, I took so I did that. Um, you've probably got it in front of you. I, I yeah. basically went off your plan. Um, oh no, I've got a timeline, so I um, I did my uh. Oh no, I don't have it here. Sorry. <laughs> oh, no, that's right. Yeah. You
2: would have done that about an hour and a half to two hours prior to race start.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. So I, I did the the sodium load and then uh, we I did some um, pre cooling half. Well, I think it was one hour before the race. I um, I jumped into a, an ice bath. So they had ice bath set up in the medical room, and um, it was only my our, us it was the canadians and the um new zealanders that pre-cooled using the ice baths um so i was in there for i think 20 minutes and then got out put on an ice vest and went to the call room which was air conditioned um and in there i had a morton drink slushy and so that was like just slushy ice i guess and i was like i physically was having so much trouble getting it down because i was freezing from the ice bath i was in an air-conditioned tent and i had an ice vest on um so i got down as much of that slushy as i could and then um then i got out basically they take you out of the tent with about 10 minutes 15 minutes to go and um or like the first f- first five minutes, you're freezing cold, and all of a sudden you start to defrost. And um, by, the st- by the time the gun goes, you're about normal. Yeah. So so yeah, yeah. I use those tactics. The um the, the the sodium loading was different. Like I, I struggled to get it down. Um, I think the flavour and the the taste was just a bit too strong. Um, and it felt sick, it, like I felt a little sick immediately after. Yeah. I think, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's not uncommon. Um, in studies that have used, like um, like in my PhD, for example, we used sodium capsules, not not for a sodium load in that sense. It was more, you know, high sodium diet over a day and we needed to blind, you know, whether they were having the sodium or, or not, so we put it in capsules. And if you take too many in one hit and it just hits your stomach all at once, it makes you vomit. Um, yeah, <laughs> pretty, pretty easily. So yeah, I, I can imagine that that might be the case. Um, yeah, and it's hard just just to explain because I guess we didn't talk about this in the last episode with the sodium loading. The idea behind that is to um, basically retain as much water in the body and basically over deliberately overhydrate in the, the hour or so leading up to the race so when you start the race you've actually got more fluid on board than you would had you not done that um, so if you drink a whole bunch of fluid leading up to the race but without the sodium you just your kidneys are going to kick in and you're just going to pee out all the excess uh, and so you're just going to be needing to go to the toilet five minutes before a race start which is going to annoy the hell out of you um, so the idea with the sodium load is by taking the sodium alongside the water your body's going to retain that more. Um, it kind of sort of balances out the concentration of sodium in your blood rather than diluting it by just putting water in. Uh, and so that's not going to stimulate your kidneys to, to flush out the um, the excess fluid, so you, you tend to hang on to it. And glycerol basically works in the same way um, in the same way as sodium loading does. It's just a you know, different way of achieving the same end result, essentially. Yeah. Cool. All right. Um, so you mentioned like the Canadians, the New Zealanders yourselves uh were sort of going down that pre-cooling route. What did you see look looking around at at other athletes from other countries? What sort of things were they doing to prepare?
0: Well, the Africans were actually doing the exact opposite. They were um <laughs> they were in full kit, full tracksuit, jacket and pants, and they were out jogging around in the um in the heat. So I was getting out of the ice bath with my ice vest on and they were basically out for a jog um, just along the course. So that was really confusing to me because like you would think that they would have someone sort of maybe like directing them not to do that. Um, And then I I thought, oh, maybe I'm the one doing it wrong. These (laughs) bikes run a lot faster than I have. Uh, but yeah, I didn't f- like. I wasn't. I didn't do any warm up except for um, jogging from the tent to the start line because I wanted to start with the lowest possible core temperature I could start with. And they, um, they were actually sort of more about warming the body up before the start of the race. So yeah, I, that <laughs> that was what I saw. I didn't see any. I saw one of the athletes w- start the race in a um, ice fest actually. So he's, and that was under his jersey. Yeah. So yeah i thought that was a really bad call um so Mm -hmm. he within a lap it just looked so heavy on him um and i couldn't see how he was going to get that off out under his under his jersey so that yeah that was one sort of thing i'm glad i didn't do uh yeah there was there was some sort of during the race things that i'd practice, like having stockings filled with ice um but mechanically, again, you try to put something around you; it just bounces everywhere. I couldn't just—I couldn't get it right. Mm. Um, same thing with the hats. Like, if you look at the walkers, there can there was these hat. The Germans had these top hats on, and they would basically like fill it with ice. Yeah, and the top hat would come up and yeah. keep the ice on top of their head. Uh, <laughs> it was, was pretty funny. like the Monopoly man with the monocle <laughs> and the cane. And oh, it absolutely was that. If you go, you have to go and find a photo because it, it it was comical watching. Um, it was just a shoot like a chimney up their head. Um, yeah, yeah. Awesome. I, uh, but the running's a bit different to walking. There's a little bit more uh, up and down. <laughs> yeah
2: yeah um so in terms of i guess the the logistics of um the during event nutrition part um how did that all work out for you so you you obviously had some um some help some supporters there um how did you kind of pan all that out
0: yeah so the it was a 7k loop and there was an aid station at the basically uh halfway point on the loop so three and every three and a half k i would get an aid station where i could take on my own personal drinks that's um different to a normal marathon that's normally every five kilometers um so that was a good help because i could access kind of chill drinks there but then they also had set up more um uh, regular cold water stations tables where they had just chill, like out of ice buckets, um, water bottles that um, you, you could open and put over you as well. So yeah. that was probably every two, every kilometre after the drink station, there would be a, after the aid station, there'd be a drink station. Yeah. Um, so I was accessing much more fluid than I would be able to at a normal marathon. And, and so I could plan around that. I could, um, so the way that I had it planned was like, Uh, at, um, three kilometers, I would just take on water and, um, then at at sort of seven kilometers. I was, I was able to take on, um, like my, my Morton drink mix, which had sodium as well as carbohydrate. And I know like Steph, you, um, you sort of had adjusted my carb intake for the heat. Uh, but I, I was finding that I could actually take more on than suggested at the time. It was feeling fine for me. so. I would have a, give me the, to give me the option of taking more carbohydrate, I'd take a water bottle, but I would have a gel strapped to it. Yep. And if I felt like I needed the gel, then I could take it. If not, I could just disregard it. Um, and I was finding like, it was really quite easy to open it and just take a little suck or at least half the gel and then throw it. Um, so yeah, I got access to more aid and those drink stations in between that with the ice water, that was like, that was a savior. Um, because just having that over the top of your head just it gave you an instant relief and boost and by the time like 2k came along like six and a half minutes you were already feeling like you needed another whole bottle over your head yeah yeah Yeah. that's (laughs) how
2: bloody hot it was yeah yeah Um, well yeah
0: yeah. it was hot but I should say the women's race was hotter
2: yeah well I was gonna say because that was the thing wasn't it it was kind of thinking that it was going to be a lot hotter than what it actually panned out to be in the end
0: Mm, yeah yeah. the women's was the what the women's was mid 30s but the humidity was like 80 percent um and we went and watched that and that was legitimately scary watching those girls go around and it was a death march um like oh it was it was scary like i was scared i was watching girls collapse in the middle of the course with no one around and Mm -hmm. um Like, I know (laughs) everyone back home watched it and Mm. they were sending me messages like, what are you going to do? Like, is this safe? Mm. Um, Because it was a few days before your race, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a week before. So, you guys Um, must have been
1: thinking, oh, what have we got in store?
0: Yeah, well, we pretty much, I pretty much was. I was thinking this is actually, like, this is scary stuff. Mm. Um, And am I going to? am I going to run hard enough where I put myself in a really like dangerous, dangerous. position mm. Yeah. or or do I do I run off the back and run as slower than anybody and finish in a semi-reasonable time but give myself no chance of running with anybody um, in the end I got to see all the walks go through the week so the men's marathon was like the last event of the whole program nearly so I, I watched the walks happen and Um, got some ideas and some tactics and then brent he was quite good with his math so he was plugging in all the um the like the performances versus pb percentage differences and so he sort of gave me an idea about pace that i might be able to sustain like based on science i guess and uh in the end we got to our evening and the humidity was quite low. I think it was about 50% yep. versus 80%, and that made all the difference. So mm. I could actually run like it would just be like a normal warm, like a hot day back home So and without direct sunlight. Um, so it was just a hot marathon really. It wasn't anything scary. My race. Mm.
2: Yeah. 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 And um, how much did you – so – how much did you end up being able to achieve, I guess, in the end in terms of because, um, you know, you looked back at it, how how did you go with getting in your fluid intake and, um, yeah. Yeah,
0: I think pretty, pretty good. Like uh, I can't remember exactly. I just I do remember um, pretty much going to every single aid station I could mm-hmm. and knowing that knowing that that would benefit me even if it's at like 35 kilometers knowing that if i ignore this one the last two kilometers i can suffer a bit um so i did hit every station even if it was just to get like a third of what was in the bottle in yeah um i had some options at some of the aid stations so uh one like the aid station attendant so an athletics australia staff he would he was holding out two options for me as i ran up and i could select whether i wanted which one i wanted um again that's not going to happen at a normal marathon so that was really handy now um, and it's good too because i can sort of go oh i'm so done with morton right now i mm. want this i want this coke so mm-hmm. i'll grab a coke mm-hmm. and, and and it was chilled so anything cold was good too yep.
2: Yeah. Yep. yeah 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 um yeah it seems like um and i know like you know you sort of we had the guide and then i think you kind of um reported back on roughly what you might have done um and it seemed like you tolerated like pretty well a good amount of fluid um per hour like um you know maybe maybe 125 mils every 20-25 minutes or so so each hour potentially you know at least 600 mils or so and probably more who knows um at least for those first two hours um so
0: yeah i think it was probably more like yeah based on all the extra water stations that i hit yeah like i can't ever track that i know sometimes i'll grab two bottles one went over the head and i tried to suck down at some um of the other bottle so it's just yeah it's hard to know yeah but i didn't feel thirsty at the end which was really good just felt hot like you just your head goes on fire when it's that hot yeah yeah
2: Yeah. and your carb intake was good too like um initially you know i'd suggested um perhaps we needed to dial it down just because of hydration being such such a factor um but you know you you trained with it and you knew that you know you were you were getting it down so um yeah you got a good amount of carbs down for that for that race as well which was great
0: yeah yeah I was happy with that I'm, I've never had an issue with that I've always sort of gone to maybe the more at the higher end of the range without any gut issues in a race so um I was sort of willing to take a bit more of a punt on that
2: yep yep yeah That's good um and then I guess yeah like part of the things that we were also looking at was just that the fact that you were um racing at night and so um for me i was really interested because that was my my study was looking at people running day versus night um and um and just you know because i well i guess we've got our findings out now um so i work with obviously as you know a lot of runners and a lot of ultra runners and um ultra runs start in the in the evening, particularly over in Europe, like they can start 12 midnight. um, And um, anecdotally, a lot of athletes report symptoms um, in the evening. And I just thought, is there something in that? Um, So so yeah. so so we looked at that. And um, interestingly enough, the severity of gut symptoms is worse in the evening um, versus day um, just because our gut slows down um okay during that yeah. time so i was kind of, yeah i I sort of i was interested in that aspect um and that's you know with your lead in sort of nutrition was why i was kind of just looking at that wanting us to kind of go a bit you know lower fiber lower res lower fodmap um because you're you know you're, you're you've got all this food in your gut um that you would not be used to in your typical races previously
0: well that's that was kind of uh i think being i was my breakfast was lunch yep. and so i was sort of it would have been as if i was competing um maybe early evening which a lot of track races go off in the early evening so sort of had a little practice with that in the past um but yeah the it, it was really difficult because we were going to the the buffet which is at a big hotel and you sort of suggest like i think that's one thing i wrote i was like i, I needed a little more food than maybe just because of the hunger i was yeah. getting and on race day yeah. i needed more food in my gut to satisfy that perhaps yeah. um and oh there's only so much rice with <laughs> you can eat with sauce (laughs) (laughs) that was brutal i couldn't do another day (laughs)
2: um so so i guess um overall you think your nutrition plan everything went pretty well to to how you you would have liked it and your your performance
1: yeah
0: i can't really think of anything else i would have done different yeah
1: Mm. oh one thing i was going to ask you did
0: you happen to weigh yourself before and after no i didn't actually um yeah that would have been interesting Mm. uh no no (laughs) Mm. i I was doing it in the lead up before i would run and sauna um yeah so I i would i would weigh myself go out run sauna come back and i was losing an enormous amount of weight like so I was weighing sixty eight around a 67, 68 at the time, and I was losing. Sometimes I would lose four to five kilos for one of these runs, um, and and I was I was telling that to the the uh, the dietitian or the I can't remember whether it was this, the Athletics Australia. We basically had to have meetings with the, the staff, um, and and this was actually in the AIS facility in Gavarate in Italy where. I was in at the heat room and i was running on the treadmill in the heat and we would weigh before and after and then we would have a i would go into the bath or it was like a pool a hot pool afterwards and then um weigh myself after that and yeah one of the times was a massive massive weight loss and uh, they were quite scared of that actually um they'd sort of discussed they wanted to change a few things which I was not really interested in because it was the first time that I'd ever met them and they didn't know my plan or my history. And this that was one of the issues that I found with the whole training camp leading the pre-camp stuff is that you're exposed to people who don't know you, know your plan um, or, or or know like what your history is really. And so mm-hmm. I was starting to field advice from um, from these, these sort of experts, I guess, uh, and, and I just, I was getting too many voices coming from different directions. And in the end, I just said that. I said, look, I don't want to hear this stuff. Like, mm. you've basically told me this is a real worry and you're really concerned, and my performance is going to drop because I'm losing all this body weight. And you've put a real negative um, and a real negative thought process in my head. And you've given me a lot of worry for the race day when I really didn't need that because I was finding it was fine before mm. that. And so I sort of I sort of tuned out after that and said, look, I don't want you guys talking to me anymore, really. Um, I'm gonna use my own people because I actually trust yeah. them, so yeah.
1: Yeah, and it was interesting in the last episode, we were talking to Dr. Lewis James and he mentioned something similar. He said, well, you know, a lot of people go out and uh, try and have this perfect hydration plan in training and offset all this weight loss and everything like that. But if that's not physically possible to do that in a race, wouldn't you wanna prepare in training like you're gonna experience during a race?
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think was it you, Steph, who said Gebra Slasley lost ten percent of his body weight when he ran the yeah, world record? Yep. And and I just looked at that and thought, well <laughs> I'm not worried. I'm, not, I'm actually not worried. So because they were stating other statistics about weight loss and the performance degradation with how many kilos you lose or percentage of body mass or whatever, and I was like Don't tell me this stuff now. Like, I don't need to know this now. I need to know positive stuff now. So, I was really appreciative of when you said that. That, that helped yeah. me a
1: lot yeah mm. and and Lewis again talked about this last week and he suspects that um, you know the more trained you are as an athlete and the more you're used to sort of losing that amount of body weight uh, to some degree you may come to tolerate that better whereas in a lot of those studies where you lose two percent and oh my god you know it's all crazy and mm. everything it's probably people who aren't very experienced athletes that are doing those kind of studies because that's who you can recruit for your studies so uh, it gotcha. may be yep. that you know exposure to that repeatedly you actually build some level of tolerance to, to body mass loss. So that's, I know it's an area he's sort of trying to explore through research now because it's, it's, it's more a hypothesis at this stage, but um, yeah, hopefully he'll he'll get some data on that soon and um, have a bit more answer around that. But yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. And I think at the end of the day, like you're gonna be limited by the practical issues, uh, the tolerance, the ability to, to grab you know drink swallow tolerated in your gut uh, during a race like a marathon because the intensity is so high um and, and you know biomechanically you're bouncing around so much so it, it's always going to put a ceiling on what you can possibly drink and so you know it doesn't matter what your fluid loss is in a in a situation like that you're never going to be able to replace all of it it's just impossible Um, and I guess that comes back to sort of summing up this whole discussion and and coming to that conclusion around that question you know should I drink to a plan or or drink to thirst well you know there's not going to be a a one-size-fits-all answer for that but Uh, I think it's fair to say that while you didn't necessarily go through that process of measuring your sweat losses and saying, I'm going to drink, you know, 800 mils an hour or 900 mils an hour or whatever it was on race day, you still had a plan. And that plan was to go to each aid station and drink an amount that you knew you could tolerate and physically, mechanically drink. Um, And whatever that amount was is kind of almost doesn't matter because it's the maximum you're going to be able to do on the day. So, um, that you know well it's not a, a specific mills per hour plan it's still a plan of what you're going to do on the day which you did obviously executed well and you know, your result kind of speaks for that
0: yeah 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 that's pretty much how it was get in as much as you can I think that was what the uh, the the instructions were <laughs> and and if you don't feel like if if you feel like you can't drink a bottle that at this off. station then then don't drink yep. a bottle yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. And I think the one thing I'll, I'll point out here uh, is, I guess for a lot of uh,
1: for a lot of uh, runners or cyclists, triathletes, whoever it is, if you're doing an event that's not a super hot race like this and it's not a super high intensity race like this, like if you're a four or five hour marathon runner, or you're doing a, like an Ironman or an ultra marathon, and it's cool, um, then that approach is probably not appropriate because you're gonna end up overhydrated and drinking too much and risk hyponatremia and that kind of thing. So again, it's, it's sort of horses for courses and, and that was the right strategy for you uh, for that particular event in those particular conditions, but that's not going to be the best approach for someone running yeah a four hour marathon
2: in London in 10 degrees and boring mm right yeah all just yeah yeah, Yeah. so individual and dependent on context and um yeah like um i i still we we think we would suggest depending on again the events and stuff like um particularly um for the ultra guys um to to get an idea of of in some of their training sessions so we would get them to you know, and it's annoying sometimes, but go and work out roughly what you are losing in the different conditions and different paces. Um, And that can be very different to what's going to happen in your race. But then we can have, we've got some data and we've got a little bit of an idea of, okay, well, here's maybe our range right down this end to right down this end. And I know these kind of conditions, um, rather than going in with, no idea at all Um, and then and then you you use a mix of of um, like Lewis was saying you know like you when we go with drinking according to thirst that's still a plan Um, so you kind of use a bit of both you kind of can go drink according to thirst but then you have a bit of an idea of um, you know maybe you know I need to try and work towards here um, because Particularly in some events um, and, and the ultras, if we really, really underdo that and we are in the heat, um, then that, that does become an issue, particularly when they're trying to chug things down as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's where that drinking to thirst, I mean, you could practice that in training as well and actually see what effect yeah. that's having, because for some people, thirst good tends and to make them lose mm. a lot of body weight. And we talked about it last week, you know, for some people, they end up mm. overhydrated, drink, you know, quote unquote, drinking to thirst. So I, I guess it's it's one thing to know what is probably your, your minimum, your maximum likely yep. fluid losses. Um, and the other thing is what, to know whether thirst is going to land you in the middle of that or it's going to push you you're above or below that range and uh, if that's the case then maybe you do need to be a bit more prescriptive with it um, and if not um, then that's great and for the majority of people they you know thirst will probably mm. be appropriate in that in that range or in you know Jules's case here obviously Practical. the fluid loss was going to be so high that you were never going to get up to that range so um, you know that that focus on just drink as much as you can is going to be appropriate in that scenario mm. Mm. yeah yeah cool all right well i think that sort of draws to a conclusion nicely kind of our discussion around that question which is great So Jules, we've got a bonus round for you. Cool. So we we have this every episode, and find out a little bit more about you, besides your running and besides uh, what you drank uh, and uh, passing out in hot bars and and the like. Um, So first question, if you could do anything besides what you're doing now, which is running a lot and running the shoe shop, what would you
0: do? Mm.
1: And the podcast, Uh, of course, we didn't mention the podcast, the Inside Running podcast.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, the podcast, well, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> you told us I, now, five episodes in. <laughs> the, the the um the best is, or the, I think the ideal for me, I would love to be like a professional surfer. So you basically go, you you kind of chase the summer. You go to all the idyllic locations around the world. Um, uh places like europe like france portugal spain um morocco and then you south africa you've got the east like the west coast of the us you've got hawaii you got indonesia the maldives all these places tahiti where there's brilliant waves um and it just seems like it would be a, I, I know it's not because i know it is a really cutthroat competitive thing but um but it, it just seems like from the outside, it looks pretty fun.
1: Yeah, and I reckon if you had to choose between surfing and snowboarding, like do you wanna chase winter around the world or summer around yeah. the world? Deliver a, a reasonably similar lifestyle in a lot of aspects. Yeah, I think I'd go, I'd go the summer route, yeah. Yeah. All right, um, now we asked Lewis this last week, so I'd be interested to see what you think. Your favorite post-run hydration beverage. Now here, one of your favorite quotes is by a man, Rod Dixon, who said all i want to do is drink beer and train like an animal but i've heard that for you maybe it's more more the whiskey aisle for you
0: yeah whiskey i love the idea of whiskey more than i love whiskey (laughs) (laughs) so waking up after drinking whiskey is is not good for training i can tell you that i can drink a lot of beers and train the next day but if i drink a lot of whiskey i have trouble running um there's something different in that <laughs> that just really hits a different way <laughs> but uh, i mean r- harder runs are normally done in the morning so for me i love the barista brothers uh, uh, chocolate yep, milk good one um i think they do i think they do the milk the the chocolate milk the best out of any uh any chocolate milk company barista brothers Is that one of the ones in a can no it's in a um it's in a, bottle. It's, in a per- it's in a purple uh bottle you'll see it yeah you, no, you, no. once you yeah. have it you see it everywhere because you yeah.
1: always want to get it <laughs> yeah well because i've seen supermarkets they're doing like flavored milk in cans this is, is bad to talking to you guys
2: because um emma emma jeff was talking about one of her things that she loves traveling with is um biscotti spread and now kate and so my flatmate and i have both now chug through biscotti spread and now you've just told me mm. about this chalky milk so we're gonna have that so
0: try this one try the try it because it i mean every you're from south australia so you you won't be able to leave yeah it, Farmers Farmers Union. Union. yeah, you're, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> try it though i reckon it beats it <laughs>
2: And what about when you do your AVO runs though? Isn't it? Um, yep.
0: Oh yeah, I definitely. Finish with a beer after. Um, I'm actually big now on mid-strength beers, so I've I've smartened up a little. And at the at the, the moment, my favourite is the Billy the Mid. It's by Mountain oh. Goat. It's in a green can. Yeah, they just brought oh. them out. Um, the guy who I buy my beer from is trying to get me to buy this alcohol-free oh. beer, but I just can't. I no. can't do it. No. <laughs> I just don't know. He's trying to convince me, but nah.
1: Yeah, well, low-alcohol low beer is actually not too bad from a hydration mm. point of view. I don't know if you've read the research on that, but I think we might actually get Ben Desbro, who's done a lot of that research on the podcast mm. at some stage. Um, he's, nice, he's the yeah. man, man. He's the man beer. in terms of yep. caffeine, but he's the man in terms of beer. Like he's got all
0: these bases covered. Yep you should get a beer sponsor then (laughs) to sponsor that episode because they that would be quite good um promo for them yeah well there is a few alcohol
1: free beers that kind of associate themselves with endurance events particularly probably more so in europe than here but they
0: do berlin marathon sponsored by that bird birdlinger or something oh oh, that thing is terrible (laughs) that is the like yeah (laughs) there's some bad ones yeah uh, yeah that's all i know of them
1: yeah All right, we'll leave it there. What's your favorite ritual before a run or a race? Do you have any sort of things that you you have to do every time?
0: Oh, I used to be able to get out of bed and run straight away. Now I get out of bed, um, slide into like these big thick sandals because I've got plantar fasciitis. I put it, so I have the same ritual. I walk downstairs, I put a heat pack in the microwave. I make a coffee. I've got this wrap around my uh, lower back that I turn on. It's like a heat wrap. (laughs) I put my foot on the other heat pack. Um, (laughs) So this is about 40 minutes (laughs) worth. Then I have to do some sort of like, oh, I do the massage gun to try to loosen all my glutes up. Um, And then I do a bit of a mobility routine. So my pre-run is I'm I'm so beat Mm -hmm. up and hold it 60 minutes (laughs) worth before I – get out of bed to out the door and even then I'm late sometimes <laughs> yeah but I think if it's one thing Andy chafe oh, I just okay. haven't been a, I have to run I have to put Andy chafe on every single time I run yeah it's a I big run. regret when yeah. you don't yeah. <laughs> yeah or you're out the door and you realize you've
1: forgotten it's like do I wing it do I go back
0: mm, go back, go back. <laughs> yeah always go back <laughs> <laughs> it
1: depends how far you are from home I suppose.
0: yeah
1: all right um do you live by any piece of advice or motto or anything like that
0: uh sort of so this was actually quite a funny thing that i've learned to embrace but it it was a um quote my friend used to use all the time and it was champions don't chase so it kind of like he had his own meaning for it i've kind of twisted it into um don't do things just because someone else does them, and don't follow other people blindly. So, don't, yeah. So, like, carve your own way. Do what works for you. And um, if you like doing something, do it. Doesn't matter what other other people think or if they've that's, done it before. Yeah, that's a good one. You, you should do. You
1: should do our um, "Don't Get Me Started" segment because this was Steph's "Don't Get Me Started" in episode one from memory. <laughs> She got a moose on the loose spin-off. <laughs> yes, more or less, yeah. so that sounds familiar. Yeah, so uh, for those who aren't aware, Julian, also known as the moose, has his little rant on the Inside Running podcast, and uh, Steph and I have a bit of our rant uh, yeah, around nutrition-related okay. issues, and I think number one, Steph, was you, and it was don't just do something because everyone yep. else is doing it. Yeah,
2: yeah. I reckon, yeah, Moose, though, I reckon an easy one, you'd, isn't it? you'd get stuck in a bit more than me.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to, uh, I've, I've pushed it too far. It, 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 like it's really, it's hard to cop emails like the hate mm, emails yeah. um, that come through. The social media, if you annoy one, if someone's a little bit sensitive, all of a sudden there's an mm. army of social media warriors that come out against you and I cop yeah. that before and so I'm like, I'll oh, just put it away. Yeah. I don't yeah. need this in my yeah. life. Yeah, yeah. Fair (laughs) enough. fair enough yeah
1: all right and final question so you um run run a a shoe shop in ballarat selling specializing in running shoes what's Mm. your all-time favorite running shoe and why
0: yeah the well we're going speed we're going retro mm, exactly that's what i'm thinking right now (laughs) like oh it's hard to go past the nike vaporfly four percent which is what i ran my first sort of Good marathon which i had my breakthrough in um but the best shoe that i've ever worn from the box and loved it more than anything is a shoe called the nike terra kiger mm-hmm. one it, so it was the original trail shoe from nike 2013 it released around i think it released in about october no no sorry july probably you in, in america um i got it when i was in america and straight out of the box, I'm like, "This is the best shoe I've ever put on." And then it continued to be the best shoe until they changed it. It made <laughs> the number two, and all of a sudden, I was off it. I, we had a year of that shoe, and I thought, I, "Oh, what I wouldn't Very give nice. for a pair of those again!"
2: Don't know why people change things when they get onto a good thing.
0: That was a horrible change. Whoever made that call, because oh, geez, the one, it was soft and it was. It, it was kind of like our shoes are starting to feel again. Maybe we'll get it again. Maybe it'll come back.
2: Tiger one returns.
0: Oh, runners in your shoes. <laughs> yeah. You guys could talk about that all day, couldn't you? Oh, well,
1: I do. Yeah, we do. Yeah, We do. We do. Steph, you do too. Yeah. Yep. Yep. All right. All right, well, we'll wrap it up there. Thanks so much for your time, Jules. Um, great to hear about sort of how things worked out for you for hydration in, in what was a pretty I guess unique uh, and challenging environment so thanks so much for your time
0: yeah, yeah thanks for thanks. having me on
1: so there we have it Julian Spence the big moose himself fantastic interview um, great insights into to what happened over in Doha and, and some of the work that you did with him Steph uh, around planning for for hydration and and what happens on the day and and, you know, clearly, as we said at the end of that interview, like, you know, drinking to plan, drinking to thirst, well, those two kind of intersect. And as Lewis said last week, you know, drinking to the thirst is a plan in mm-hmm. itself. But uh, in this case, it was just drink as much as you can because you're never going to be able to drink enough to cover your, your sweat losses.
2: Yeah, and I think also, you know, when we have a plan, like we always say in a plan, like you always have backup strategies and it's not set in, you know, it's not set in stone kind of thing. So um yeah like it's you know we had we we had a plan and a guide and then you do what you can do on the day Mm
1: -hmm. it reminds me of the pirates of the caribbean when they say you know they talk about the pirate rules and then they say oh they're not rules they're more like guidelines but i think that's you know the reality in this case yeah
2: exactly yep yep Mm
1: awesome all right so that brings us to a conclusion with uh episode 3b of the long munch Uh, as i said at the start if you want to get in touch with us you can do via twitter instagram or facebook at the long munch Uh, feel free to give us feedback what you're liking what you're not liking and if there's a particular topic or question that you want answered obviously let us know that as well Um, and if you want to like um like or subscribe to the podcast through whichever podcasting platform you're listening to this on, that'll really help us out, that'd be fantastic. Uh, And if you wanna leave us a review, of course, that'd be great as well. So I think that's pretty much all we've got time for today, Steph, but let's talk about our next episode, episode 4A. Now, 4A, what are we gonna be talking about?
2: I'm looking forward to this one, Alan, actually, because um, I think it's a common one that people get caught up with. Uh, So we are talking about why does that person sweat more than me?
1: Yeah, or less potentially. Yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah, yep.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to look at why sweat rate varies so much from person to person. Some of the common myths and misconceptions around that, because I think often people think, oh, that person sweat less, they must be so much fitter than me, and, and that kind of thing. Oh, I'm sweating like a pig, I must be, you know, really unfit or whatever mm-hmm. it is. So we'll we'll ask Ollie around that. Is that true? Is that complete, you know, myth or misconception? Um, and what are really the factors that understand this? Because he's done some fantastic research. So uh, Ollie's a, a thermal physiologist. So he's in entire world, I guess, if you like, from a research point of view as a scientist, is understanding how people cope with different extremes in temperatures and how the body reacts to those. So uh, he's done a lot of great research around understanding how sweat rates vary from one person to the next. Uh, He runs, he's the head of the Thermal Ergonomics Laboratory at the University of Sydney. Yeah. Um, so it'd be great to get him on. Uh, and we'll probably have a bit of a chat to him about heat more broadly off the back of this discussion with Doha, uh, because Ollie is also uh, been involved in writing heat policies for various sports uh, around, certainly around Australia and, and probably internationally as well. Um, if you ever watch the Australian Open mm. tennis, um, when they decide to close the roof or when they decide to suspend play on the outside courts, that's the policy that he wrote, is that mm. that kind of heat policy. And and his team um, do a lot of work around sort of athletes welfare in, in hot environments and things as well so yeah fantastic to speak to Ollie and, and get his perspective around you know sweat rates uh, and, and coping in the heat.
2: Sounds great yeah I'm I'm looking forward to that one because I've got some things that I'm going to quiz him on.
1: Yeah no worries all right so that's all we've got time for today enjoy your running your cycling your swimming if you're a triathlete as well and we'll see you all very soon.
2: Awesome thanks for listening.